The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I can literally go through the grocery store and I think remove at least 50% of its contents if I take anything that has a military origin or influence. This week on War College, we go from the front lines to the grocery aisle and find out how our food supply has been changed forever by military innovation. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today we're talking to journalist and author Anastasia Mark de Salcedo about her latest book, Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way We Eat. Anastasia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason and Matthew. Uh, it's said that an army marches on its stomach. Um, often people don't realize how true that is. Um, what is it about the diets of the early great conquerors, such as the Romans, uh, that gave them an edge in combat? Well, uh, before we talk about the edge, let's talk just about what you need for food that would be taken into battle. And that is um, the very first wars were fought relatively close to home, and that would have been in ancient Sumer. And there, the uh, ancient Sumerian city-states were constantly warring, but they were very close by, a matter of miles. So soldiers could literally go home for lunch. They brought with them some barley cakes, some beer, and some green onions, but that was about it. Uh, in other civilizations, which began to roam further afield to fight wars and conquer new lands, they had a need to bring food with them. And that's really where this whole entry of the military in uh, food science and food preservation begins. And so that would mean food that was dried or uh, salted, it could be smoked, or it could be pickled. And some of the very first foods were, again, these cakes that people brought. But uh, very quickly, ancient armies hit upon the idea of a preserved protein. And that would have been dried or smoked or salted. When, when you say really early, uh, how early? That would have been about? that, and I was just about to get to that. That would have been in. Ah, okay, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. In ancient Egypt, when uh, they began to travel with a bit of dried or salted fish, and in fact, this was so important to them that soldiers received an allotment every three months as their wages. So they were actually paid in food. They were paid in a bit of food. That is correct. Huh. Um, one of the, one of the great kind of bits of your, of your book that I really loved when you talk about the Mongols, uh, which is one of the greatest land armies to ever walk the earth. Um, around 1200 AD, 12, uh, 1250s or so, right. right? Um, can you describe their diet to us? Yes, I actually found their diet to be one of the more interesting of the warrior cultures. And, the, and one, of the, one of the things that I noticed about the Mongols is they were really, their whole lives were oriented toward war and preparing uh, their citizens to be warriors. And, so, and their food reflected that. Uh, uh, what they ate 
at least on the trail, were uh, powdered milk. They were, in fact, the inventors of powdered milk, and this would be uh, put into a, a probably a bladder, an animal bladder, and with water. And while the uh, Mongol was galloping across the plains, it would be shaken up into a milkshake. And the other uh, ration would have been a sort of cured uh, horse meat or or other kind of ruminant that would have been pressed between the rider's saddle and cured with the sweat of uh, the horse's flanks and as he, he rode. And then it would kind of be this hard little salty bit of meat, a jerky. And they also drink the horse's blood, correct? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm glad you remembered that piece. And there was an infallible emergency ration when everything else ran out. And that was that uh, the Mongol warrior would cut a vein in his mount's neck and drink straight from that. And actually, um, there was an episode of Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel uh, that talked about how Mongols still do that. Oh, do they? That's fascinating. They they apparently they apparently still do that in their yurts uh, on the uh, the uh, steppe. It is a, a tradition that has gone on at least in um, nomadic peoples. So, and that gives you actually both protein as well as liquid, right? Yes. So, I mean, it's actually. It's not simply just an act of desperation, but it's it's somewhat efficient. Yeah, I would. I mean, the protein is probably a superior food when you compare it to the barley cakes and the beer of uh, the ancient Sumerians. Although they might might have been more fun. Um, so, so all this talk of uh, of blood, I think, kind of transitions into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which was the Aztec Empire or the Aztec kingdoms, rather. Um, and their need for food, and kind of the, the, what that drove them towards. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit careful on this, because I may get run off the internet by hordes of uh, pitchfork-waving Redditors. But um, one of those theories about what gave rise to the, the cannibalism among the Aztecs is that they had experienced uh, several years of crop failures and were unable to feed themselves. So around 1500, three Aztec city-states formed an alliance and began uh, what we know to be the Aztec Empire. And what they sought in their subjugated city-states was not sort of the typical thing, spoils of war, but simply edibles. And those included tributes, you know, the normal kind of stuff that they might provide crops and so forth, but it also included enemy soldiers. And these were marched back um, to the capital and then went through the process as that most of us know about of human sacrifice. And one of the theories about this is that this was because uh, the in that region, there had been no uh, large mammal that could be domesticated when agriculture was born. And so the diet was really primarily a vegetarian one, at least for commoners. And so this system, which around which there was an entire um, religious and political uh, institutions built, allowed the nobles, and that would include the warriors and priests, to 
on a regular basis at least get a little animal protein. So uh, you're talking about it was for the upper class? For the upper class exclusively. That's, that's definitely, I had not heard that before. I was actually uh, in Mexico City uh, a few years ago, and they hadn't brought that up, um, <laughs> interestingly enough. Uh, what, what sort of evidence are you citing? What sort of evidence am I citing? Yeah. Oh, I'm not, I, I have not done my own research on this, so I'm citing okay. other, you know, I'm, you know researchers, yeah. and, and there were several anthropologists. I think that um, the fact that the Aztecs practiced kennels, as I understand it, is not in dispute. Why is okay. the question? And so there's sort of this balance between what this theory, which is called the ecological theory, and others who believe it was more of a religious and ideological bent. But I can see that those two things could be coexistent. Right, that makes sense. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, we've been talking largely about um, ancient militaries, and and I, I do want to before we move on too far. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I hate to pass over the Romans entirely, simply because they're uh, my favorite ancient civilization. Um, so. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the, the Roman army is famous for standardization. And was that was the diet also part of that? Well, I, I can't say for sure, but I mean, certainly they had, uh, they produced, their agricultural system uh, tended to produce things in great quantities. And so in that sense, it could have been. Um, what, what, I did, what I found very interesting about the Roman uh, empire was the the spread of pork products, and that actually occurred because of a couple things. One is that all uh, Ro Roman legionnaires were also landowners and farmers, and that was considered to be a great honor. And so, on farms, uh, naturally. Uh, you might have a few pigs because they forage very well, and so they're easy to grow. And they, the second reason is that, of course, the Romans had really um, tapped into the world's salt supply, and so they were able to act to pay their soldiers in wages and salt, as we all know, and that's where the word salary comes from. And that salt was used to cure prosciutto and sausages and bacon. And that spread far and wide with the Roman Empire and persists to this day. Just make clear to people, we're talking largely during, I guess, the Republican and late Republican period, because uh, after a while they no longer had any land to give away. But um, I will stop being pedantic <laughs> right there, I, I, I promise. Um, and uh, so, uh, Matt, you, I knew you had a, a question to ask about something somewhat more modern? As the armies moved farther and farther afield, uh, they, they, the militaries needed ways to preserve the food, and one of the big innovators was, was what, what were the French, correct, during the French Revolution. It, wasn't, it was also a French Revolution in food preservation. Yes. Um, that is actually a very interesting moment in the history of food preservation and in the history of food science. And it's the mo moment that I would mark the military's 
entrance into the kitchen, so to speak. Until then, armies had relied on traditional folk methods to preserve foods. And again, that is drying, salting, uh, pickling, and smoking. And after the French Revolutionary War, either due to difficulty in feeding soldiers, uh, starvation, and hunger experienced in that country, the French government began to look for a fifth major way to preserve food. And in 1895, a challenge was issued to any would-be food technologist who could come up with this method. That was met by a, a celebrity chef who cooked for royalty and then had retired to start a candy shop. His name was Nicolas Appert. And it actually, the candy shop was the perfect place to do this sort of experimentation. And he spent over 10 years, I think, at night working on this method of preserving food. And what he did was to put fruit and vegetables, meat, um, and other things into a glass container inside a larger metal container with boiling water in it. This is something that's very common in a candy shop, which is called a water bath. Um, and it maintains the food, it cooks the food at a constant temperature. And then he would stopper up, stop up the glass container and that, that food would stay fresh for months, if not years. He, this was, it took him quite a while to persuade the French government to accept um, his invention. And, and, but finally in 1809, uh, they just deemed it good enough and awarded him 12,000 francs. Unfortunately, they also took uh, claim to the invention, and so Nicolas Appert died a pauper and unknown. Um, but he had literally invented the fifth major uh, food preservation technique, and it changed our larders and the world. I remember growing up, I was taught in high school that Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, and that it caused a great scandal because people didn't realize how their food was being prepared and kind of paved the way for uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act and the FDA. Now, what I, what I did not know and what I was very interested to read in Combat Ready Kitchen, Anastasia, is about the United States Army's beef scandal and the hand that it had in it. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us what happened. Well, this is actually another very interesting moment because um, it was the moment in which meat eating in the military was modernized. And the reason for that is that until the Spanish-American War, uh, meat had arrived literally on the hoof. That is to say that uh, cattle was driven to camp and was slaughtered in camp and, and prepared right then and there. And uh, for the Spanish-American War, the U.S. military had finally decided a few decades earlier to switch over to a system of chilled carcass beef and canned meat. So this was a radical departure. And uh, the kerfuffle that, that I'm going to about to describe may in part have been sort of a, a uh, old guard which really wanted to have the on-the-hoof meat and a new guard that wanted the modern meat. But um, what ended up happening is that during the Spanish-American War, both uh, the chilled carcasses and the canned beef was prepared in Chicago, which was the center of the meatpacking industry, and then shipped via train and by boat to Cuba and Puerto Rico. And, of course, these are very hot countries, and uh, on the way, these, these 
uh, shipments would get temporarily or for a while exposed to heat and sunlight. And so some of it, some of the carcass beef probably spoiled and the cans experienced some deterioration inside the can. When the soldiers were given their rations, they complained mightily. And one of those soldiers was Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> who complained very mightily. And uh, uh, after the war, a general whose name was General Miles spoke out about the terrible rations that had been given to the soldiers. And uh, he based on a doctor's inspection, suggested that it had been embalmed using embalming fluids. And this created a great scandal. And there was a congressional investigation and uh, hundreds of witnesses and uh, thousands of pages written. Um, and in the course of that, the, the questions were really avoided about exactly what had happened with the meat, but there was a lot of sort of, um, let's see, behind covering, shall we say, <laughs> by, the, by the military and the meat industry in, in their attempt to prove that the meat had been okay. And uh, General Miles ended up uh, disappearing into the shadows of history. His name was tarnished, and several others also uh, were hurt by the scandal, but one person who who profited from it was Teddy Roosevelt, who used it in part to uh, ride into the White House. And one of the very first things that he did was to push through the Pure Food and Drug Act, which gave rise to the FDA. He wrote it into the White House by saying, "Look at what we're feeding our troops. How how dare we?" That sort of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. So I'm going to do another time jump. And we're going to talk a little bit more how, about the, the modern American diet and how it's shaped by the military currently. And I think to start that conversation, we need to talk about the, the Natick Soldier System, or Soldier System Center, and what exactly is it, um, and how does it shape our diet today? Well, the Natick Soldier System Center is one of 80 Defense Department research laboratories around the country. And um, there, they're, they research anything to do with supporting the individual soldier. So that would be uh, tents, airdrop, uh, textiles, body armor, and of course food or rations. And so there's a special research directorate, the Combat Feeding Directorate, that its sole job is just to work on issues related to rations, um, figuring out, you know, new menu items, sort of assessing existing ones, tweaking them, and overseeing projects among university and industry collaborators in all sorts of food science in order to further improve the ration. What is it exactly that the Natick uh, Center is actually putting out there? What are they feeding our soldiers? Well, most of what they focus on just the foods that are eaten in the field. Those are combat rations, and they have several lines of combat rations. Um, the two that are probably of most interest are the meal ready to eat and something new, which is called the first assault 
ration. The meal ready to eat um, consists of an entree that would be in a foil and plastic pouch. It has bread in a pouch. It has snack food. It has a dessert. It has uh, powdered drinks and probably an energy bar. The first strike ration is something that was developed more recently and was fielded first in 2007. And, it, it, and the reason was that the Army had found that soldiers were stripping what they said called field stripping, the MREs, of all the nutritional things and just taking the snack food and bringing that with them. So they said, well, you know, we're just going to go with the flow here and just develop sort of a snackier ration. And so the first assault has things like um, sandwiches, it has jerky, it has, again, snack food and candy and um, energy bars and, and drinks. And it, are they, so how do they balance the nutrition versus taste uh, for the military? I mean, I guess you've got to get people to eat the stuff, but on the other hand, uh, it sounds like soldiers are already a little bit choosy the way they were taking apart the MREs. Well, in fact, uh, the, the first considerations for the, for the Natick Center are not probably palatability um, and n nutritional quality, although they're certainly important, but uh, shelf life. And there's a mandate, a congressional mandate, that any, a combat ration must be able to last for three years at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So any of these items would fit that description. And that means that um, they must be imperishable and they must be durable because a lot of times, you know, they'll be shipped under difficult conditions. They're airdropped. They're stuck into backpacks. Um, and then third, they have to be affordable because the, uh, the Army's very aware that it's preparing things with the taxpayer's dollar and it really tries to mine budget. And then, so finally, kind of after that, I would say comes palatability and, and nutrition. So it, a combat ration has to balance all these different factors. And um, how do we do? I mean, uh, do you think that our... Do you have any idea of whether or not soldiers are somewhat happy with what uh, we send out to them? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that I, I, my feeling is that over the years, the, uh, the rations have improved, but they're still not there yet. And the reason that I say that is that there are still issues on the battlefield of soldiers not eating and drinking enough, and that's been a constant issue. Um, that has not yet been resolved. And, and it may not have to do with the food itself, um, I don't know. But, but one of the, the ideal would be that you could really maintain a soldier's um, nutritional profile even you know, in, in a very stressful situation. A lot of critics of the American diet kind of say that we eat all this highly processed junk food and that there's this industry, the food industry is kind of pushing it on us and you kind of uncovered and argue in Combat Ready Kitchen that is in fact the military that's altered our diets and our culture has changed to accommodate it because um, the military has invented all these wonderful ways to process food or wonderful to them. Um, can you kind of, so how, how did this stuff make the jump from the military to the public? 
Well, this is the part of the book that surprised me the most when I started to understand it, which is that the Combat Feeding Directorate and uh, any DOD research facility actually has a mandate to get the research that it conducts into the private sector. And this is because of our policy of preparedness, which was put into place after World War II and is intended to make sure that at a moment's notice, the military and the commercial sector that supports it can gear up for World War III, should that ever happen. In the case of combat rations, it means that the Army wants to make sure that the food industry could uh, quickly convert its production lines to manufacturing rations, or better yet, that consumer items that it manufactures already meet military specifications. And in fact, that is the case. And you find many consumer items in soldiers' diets. So something like um, Cheetos or Saran Wrap, just (laughs) just stuff that's on the shelves in the grocery store, all of these kind of have their origins in the American military. Correct. Do you have any other examples that uh, you uh, can share with us? Oh, I have so many that (laughs) I can literally go through the grocery store and I think remove at least 50% of its contents if I take anything that has a military origin or influence. And that starts in a place you wouldn't expect it, in the produce section, where uh, routinely we now purchase salads and greens that come in little plastic bags and just open those up and dump them into a bowl and dust them with dressing. Well, those little plastic bags are filled with modified atmosphere packaging, which was something that was developed by the Navy and Whirlpool during the 1960s and was uh, first used to ship celery and lettuce to Vietnam. I can... I can continue on in the produce section. I could take a long time. I mean, there's something recent called high-pressure processing that the Natick Center developed with a consortium of major food companies and a couple universities as well as the Food Safety Center for the FDA. And high-pressure processing is used now uh, to do the the refrigerated guacamole that stays green for weeks for single-serving fresh juices and smoothies. And Hormel had a tremendous hit with it in, uh, in about, I think, 2006 as when it came out with a line of preservative-free deli meats. This is not a finished process by any stretch, right? I mean, this is something that is ongoing. Absolutely. And that, just to give you a sense, I can just go by with and throw them in. I can throw in many, perhaps most of the items in the meat department, from boneless meat to restructured meat products. We can look at anything that would be freeze-dried. We can remove you know, whole shelves in the bakery item from uh, supermarket bread to... Uh, cookies and baked goods that are soft and moist at room temperature. We can take, as you mentioned, the saran wrap, tinfoil, TV dinners, um, converted rice, frozen orange juice. We can talk about anything that's microwave because the military invented the microwave. We can uh, even the, the consumer dishwasher in the military had a hand in that and the soaps that are used in it. Uh, let's see. I, should I go on? 
Matt, I think you wanted to ask, and I hope you don't mind me taking it from you, but um, did the Army invent the McRib? That was Matt's question, and I just, we had to get it in there. The Army did, in fact, invent the technology, which is called restructured meat, on which the McRib is based, yes. So there, there is no McRib without the American military? Absolutely not. Another thing that you mentioned in your book, and you just mentioned just now, is bread. Um, and you say that, that people in other, in other countries, especially, like, say, France, don't think that Americans actually eat bread. If it's not bread, then what, what are we eating if you buy, like, a loaf of, of bread from the grocery store? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I think um, one of the, the there was a, some early work done on this by an army contractor that made one major contribution to our non-staling uh, supermarket bread, and what it called it was a non-staling bread-like product. I think that's pretty accurate um, because what we eat has not been fermented, which is the traditional way that bread has been made and has a, a lot of different additives, including one which came through this contractor, which is the addition of bacterial enzymes to prolong the uh, freshness and softness of bread after baking. And this is kind of a really cool thing because all breads have enzymes that come from the yeast and come from um, the wheat itself, and these break down starches, and then yeast, the yeast consume the starches and excrete carbon dioxide, and that's one of the things that makes the bread rise. After the bread is baked, these enzymes are inactivated. But bacterial enzymes, because they're heat tolerant, like their host organism, are not inactivated, and so they continue to break down starches after baking. And since bread stales and reforms its starches almost immediately after being cooked, this has been a godsend for the food industry because it can now create loaves that stay fresh for a couple, at least a couple weeks after they've been baked. So if you consider that bread, that's bread. <laughs> well, um, I go back to the non-stealing bread-like product. I think that's, that's a very accurate description. Well, that's my favorite, along with Velveeta now, uh, processed cheese food. <laughs> Um, okay, so can we uh, got to wrap up? And, and so um, I think the the perfect question is: so what crazy new food products is the military dreaming up now? What can we expect? Well, it's it's dreamed up and is just about to field if it hasn't fielded already the three year shelf stable pizza. And I am sure that this is going to be a big hit um, because this is going to be a pizza that is uh, moist and uh, fresh and when stored at room temperature for up to three years. And so you'll be able to just have the, your packaged pizza in your closet, in your um, glove compartment, in your college dorm and know when, it, when, when the desire hits, just unwrap it and bite in. Okay. I can't wait uh, to send my son off to college with a whole bunch of those, uh, especially the amount of pizza he eats. Absolutely. You should stock by the box load. Just to ship it on to his dorm room. It'll keep him happy. Well, uh, I just uh, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. Um, I really feel like I've learned more than I wanted to know. The book is Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat. And our guest has been Anastasia Mark de Salcedo. Thank you for having me.
next time on War College. The machine gun is really the industrialized 20th century coming out of effectively nowhere and just beating people over the head. And that's kind of what World War I was in every aspect. <laughs>